This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. Today, Howard reflects on You Can't Predict, You Can Prepare, which was originally published on November 20th, 2001. Here's Howard. I think I was probably watching a football game and heard an advertisement from Mass Mutual with the tagline, you can't predict, you can't prepare. And it struck me as extremely wise. It's almost a a Yogi Berra type uh, statement that makes no apparent sense on first reading, but then turns out to be quite wise. And I think it's extremely appropriate for people who are active in the investment markets. You can't necessarily name a threat, but you can have a sense for when you're vulnerable. Now, I think an important thing for people to understand is what is the nature of risk and what is the nature of loss? Risk is the possibility of a bad outcome. Loss is a bad outcome. Something can be risky for a long time and not produce losses if bad things don't happen in the environment. Bad things, negative developments turn risk into loss. When I lived in California, I used to say that your house could have a construction flaw, but that flaw doesn't come to light until there's an earthquake. So a flawed house can stand for decades until it's tested in an earthquake. A risky portfolio can hold value for a long time until it's tested by an economic weakness or by some exogenous event like the 9-11 attacks or like the pandemic. The point is that there are times when your portfolio is more vulnerable to an untoward development, and there are times when it's less vulnerable. Not that the probability of the untoward development changes so much, but because its vulnerability changes. When the cycle is advanced in age and asset prices are elevated, and the appreciation of assets has made people optimistic, then the market is exposed and vulnerable to a shock. When there's been a downturn and asset prices have declined and people are pessimistic, then a further shock would not have the ability to do great harm. So that's why I say you can't predict, but you can prepare. Based on where we are in the cycle, you can take action to reduce the exposures in your portfolio. Now, you're likely to do it too early. We've been early in our caution from time to time. And I mentioned in this memo, the old saying that being too far ahead of your time is distinguishable from being wrong. But that's the truth. The question is, under the assumption that you're not going to turn cautious on exactly the right day, would you rather be too early or too late? As long as you don't do anything extreme, it's wise to try to be early, I think. So what I'm basically saying is that we can't predict the twists and turns of developments. We never know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we can, if we bear in mind the cyclical nature of things, we can understand what I call tendencies that lie ahead. And the best determinant of what's going to happen tomorrow is where we stand in the cycle. And if we're elevated, then a downturn becomes more likely. It doesn't tell us it's going to happen or when, but it becomes more likely. And if we're elevated, a decline is more likely than a rise. If we're depressed, a rise is more likely than a decline, but only slightly. There's never a point where we're so elevated that the market's sure to go down tomorrow. But if we're highly elevated, that to me is a time for caution because In the long run, things are likely to be lower, I should say, in the intermediate term, not necessarily tomorrow and probably not in 20 years because the stock market has always shown gains in the long run, but only in the intermediate term. And this thinking really laid the foundation for my recent book, Mastering the Market Cycle, which basically calls on people to respond to where we stand in the current cycle. And I always say that we never know where we're going 
but we sure as hell ought to know where we are, where we stand. And that can inform your behavior. Behavioral finance and behavioral investing and behavioral economics have become big topics more recently. But what really interested me was when it dawned on me how important psychology is in investing. And in the short run, psychology overwhelms fundamentals. And if you think about it, the economy fluctuates very little. A great year is up 4%. A good year is up 2%. A terrible year is down 2%. Very small fluctuations. Those small fluctuations in the economy cause larger fluctuations in the profits of companies because companies are levered, financial leverage and operating leverage. So a small economic fluctuation produces a big change in corporate earnings. But the stock market goes up 30% and down 30% and much more than corporate profits do. Why? Because of psychology. Psychology is dominant in determining market outcomes in the short run. And the question is, is there any way to deal with that issue rather than have it wreak havoc with us? Can we neutralize it or can we benefit from it? And I think that it's impossible to predict psychology. It's impossible to predict how people are going to feel about the market next week or next month or next year. The only thing we can do is identify where they are today and figure out, are they excessively optimistic today? That bodes ill for the future. Are they excessively pessimistic? That bodes well for the future. Or is it somewhere in between, which it is most of the time? When I was working on the new book, Mastering the Market Cycle, I was speaking with my son, which I often do. He's a good investor and he's a great sounding board for me. And I said to him that I thought that my market calls over the years had essentially been mostly correct. And he said, yeah, dad, that's because you did it five times in 50 years. And this is very important. And a light went on for me. When you do it at the extremes, the argument is compelling and the probability of success is high. When you do it in between, that's not so. So the point is that at the low in 1990, we were able to turn aggressive. And Bruce Karsh did a great job of taking advantage of the first crisis experienced by the junk bond industry. And at the low in 02, we doubled down on many investments. But going into 2000, we were aware that the tech bubble had elevated the market too high. We were aware in 05, 6, 7 that there were unhealthy things going on in the financial markets, but that right after the meltdown of Lehman Brothers in September of 08, during the global financial crisis, that things were too cheap. So the point is that, as Andrew says, five times we were able to identify extremes, which tell us what the likely tendencies are ahead. In between, when the market's a little overvalued or a little undervalued, you really can't add anything on that subject. When I was a kid, Working at Citibank in the early days of my career, in the early 70s, I would go to a meeting of something called the Third Thursday Group, which met for lunch down on Wall Street on the third Thursday of every month. And there was a bunch of investors. And one of them at one of those meetings told me about the three stages of the bull market. And I think it's really very helpful. And this is the kind of thing that started to kindle my interest in thinking about the psychology. And what he told me was that in the first stage, only a few unusually far-sighted people could imagine the possibility of improvement. Maybe there's been a recent crash. Maybe there's been a recession. Market has slid. Things are bleak. It's hard to think about improvement. In the second stage, most people accept that improvement is actually taking place. You can see it on the news every day. In the third stage, Everybody believes that things can only get better forever. That's when the market reaches its top. If you can buy in the first stage, when nobody else is optimistic, prices for assets will be low. That's when you get the great bargains. But it's hard because there's so little optimism in the world. 
and the lack of optimism will affect you as well. In the third stage, if you buy, when there's optimism every place, and in fact, no pessimism, then you'll pay high prices because the optimism will have contributed to high asset prices. And when some negative development does occur, which is inevitable eventually, things will not get better forever, then your high-priced asset purchases are very injurious. So if you think about the three stages, it contributes to my belief that it's not what you buy, but when you buy it. That's why I say that investing is not about buying good things, but buying things well. It's good buys that set the stage for successful long-term investing. Anyway, that's the view of a value investor. The growth investor says, no, you buy great companies, even if you don't get them at a reasonable price. If they're really great companies and they grow at a rapid rate for a long time, you can make money even on an original purchase, which is expensive. That's the dichotomy between value and growth. I think the points that the memo makes about cycles are very important. They are inevitable. Most things are cyclical. Most trees don't grow to the sky. Most things don't go to zero. But just when it looks like the progress in one direction will never stop, just when it looks like we're in a permanent virtuous circle or a permanent vicious circle is when it probably is most likely to stop. I think that cycles are underestimated and forgotten. It's very important to note, as Galbraith says, the importance of shortness of memory in the financial markets. And I always visualize, like in the movies about teenagers in Las Vegas, on one shoulder, there's an angel. And the angel says, be prudent. Don't go overboard. Be limited in your optimism. Don't buy that. The price is too high. Things are bound to be cyclical. There will be a turn down. And the current price assumes that there's no limitation. But on the other shoulder sits the devil in his red suit. And you know what he says? He says, buy it, you'll get rich. And I think that the desire to make money overcomes prudence and financial memory and produces dangerous outcomes. Cycles are self-correcting. And the truth is that success carries the seeds for failure and failure succeeds for success. Just when it looks like things have gotten so bad that the negative trends have to continue is probably when you reach the point when they're actually arrested and corrected. Bad business drives out competitors, which sets the scene for your recovery. We always say in the oil business that the cure for low prices is low prices. When oil prices fall, what happens? People stop drilling for oil, so the supply stops growing, and people start driving more because oil got cheap, pushing demand up. Supply down, demand up, high prices. So the cure for low prices is low prices. But the cure for high prices is high prices. Because high prices convince people to drill more and convince people to drive less. So you have supply up, demand down, that brings prices down. So regression to the mean or countercyclical developments are much more likely to prove true than unabated movement in one direction or the other. The final point on cycles is that they're not so symmetrical. People are fine with a 20% rise in the stock market, but they find a 20% fall to be catastrophic. So people should set their portfolios based on their subjective view of risk and not expect themselves to be indifferent to fluctuations. In recent years, my description of the stock market has been high level of uncertainties, low prospective returns, full asset prices, and people engaging in risky behavior in order to try to get a good return in a low return environment. Now, that combination of four factors, and by the way, I said the stock market, but these things are really applicable to all markets, the credit market, the real estate market, et cetera. These factors make the market vulnerable to an outside shock. 
That doesn't mean there will be an outside shock, but if there is, the damage could be substantial, as happened in February, March, when the pandemic rolled around and the stock market went down uh, about a third in just 34 days, fastest descent in history. And I think that was in part because it started off in a vulnerable place. So the point is that I was talking about its vulnerability, not knowing what it was that could knock it, but just aware that it was at a level which could be precarious. Everybody assumes that the pandemic will be defeated and that we'll have a strong economic recovery. Now, both of those things are probably true. So it's not unwarranted optimism, but certainly you would say that today's market is ruled by pessimism. Because if you think about it, the market reached an all-time high on February 19th, the S&P 500, at a time when the economy was doing well, the outlook was rosy, and nobody had thought much about the possibility of a pandemic. Then it fell over the next 34 days by a third, at which time the world was gripped by pessimism and fear about the pandemic. Today, it's surpassed the high of February, even though we are gripped by a pandemic and we have experienced the worst economy in over 80 years. How can that be? Part of it is the Fed and Treasury actions in fiscal and monetary policy, the Fed bond buying, and especially the, the rate cuts, but still for securities to be higher than they were in February, despite what's going on, has to be about optimism about the future and has to be about the willingness of investors to look across the valley to better things on the other side once the recovery has been completed and the pandemic has been brought under control. So optimism, justified optimism, but you make your best purchases when you buy in the middle of widespread pessimism. And you certainly can't say that that's out there today. And now, here's You Can't Predict, You Can Prepare, by Howard Marks. Those who have been readers of my memos for any meaningful period of time know there are a few things I dismiss and a few I believe in thoroughly. The former include economic forecasts, which I think don't add value. And the list of the latter starts with cycles and the need to prepare for them. Hey, you might say, that's contradictory. The best way to prepare for cycles is to predict them. And you just said it can't be done. That's absolutely true, but in my opinion, by no means debilitating. All of investing consists of dealing with the future, as I've written before. And the future is something we can't know much about. But the limits on our foreknowledge needn't doom us to failure as long as we acknowledge them and act accordingly. In my opinion, the key to dealing with the future lies in knowing where you are, even if you can't know precisely where you're going. Knowing where you are in a cycle and what that implies for the future is very different from predicting the timing, extent, and shape of the next cyclical move. And so we'd better understand all we can about cycles and their behavior. Cycles in general I think several things about cycles are worth bearing in mind. Cycles are inevitable. Every once in a while, an up or down leg goes on for a long time, and or to a great extreme, and people start to say, this time it's different. They cite the changes in geopolitics, institutions, technology, or behavior that have rendered the old rules obsolete. They make investment decisions that extrapolate the recent trend, and then it turns out that the old rules do still apply, and the cycle resumes. In the end, trees don't grow to the sky, and few things go to zero. Rather, most phenomena turn out to be cyclical. Cycles' clout is heightened by the inability of investors to remember the past. As John Kenneth Galbraith says, extreme brevity of the financial memory keeps market participants from recognizing the recurring nature of these patterns and thus their inevitability. When the same or closely similar circumstances occur again, sometimes in only a few years, they are hailed by a new, often youthful, and always supremely self-confident generation as a brilliantly innovative discovery in the financial and larger economic world. There can be few fields of human endeavor in which history counts for so little as in the world of finance. 
Past experience, to the extent that is part of memory at all, is dismissed as the primitive refuge of those who do not have the insight to appreciate the incredible wonders of the present. Cycles are self-correcting, and their reversal is not necessarily dependent on exogenous events. The reason they reverse, rather than going on forever, is that trends create the reasons for their own reversal. Thus, I like to say, success carries within itself the seeds of failure, and failure the seeds of success. Seen through the lens of human perception, cycles are often viewed as less symmetrical than they are. Negative price fluctuations are called volatility, while positive price fluctuations are called profit. Collapsing markets are called selling panics, while surges receive more benign descriptions. But I think they may best be seen as buying panics. See tech stocks in 1999, for example. Commentators talk about investor capitulation at the bottom of market cycles, while I also see capitulation at tops, when previously prudent investors throw in the towel and buy. I have views on how these general observations and others apply to specific kinds of cycles, which I will set forth below. The Economic Cycle Few things are the subject of more study than the economy. There's a whole profession built around doing so. Academics try to understand the economy, and professionals try to predict its course. Personally, I'd stick to the former. I think we can gain a good grasp of how the economy works, but I do not think we can predict its fluctuations. I have written ad nauseum on this subject, but I will repeat a few of the observations I consider relevant. There are hundreds, or more likely thousands, of people out there trying to predict the movements of the economy. But no one has a record much better than anyone else. Certainly no one who was consistently capable of accurately predicting the economy's movements would be among those distributing their forecasts gratis. The markets already incorporate the views of the consensus of economists, and thus, holding a consensus view can't help you make above-average returns, even if it's right. Non-consensus views can make money for you, but to do so, they must be right, because the consensus reflects the efforts of a large number of intelligent and informed people, however, it's usually the closest we can get to right. In other words, I doubt there's anyone out there with non-consensus views that are right routinely. Most of the time, the consensus forecast extrapolates current observations. Most predictions for growth, inflation, and interest rates bear a strong resemblance to the levels prevailing at the time they're made. Thus, they're close to right when nothing changes radically, which is the case most of the time, but no prediction can be counted on to foretell the important sea changes. And it's in predicting radical changes that extraordinary profit potential exists. In other words, it's the surprises that have profound market impact, and thus profound profit potential. But there's a good reason why they're called surprises. It's hard to see them coming. Each time there's a radical change, there's an economist who predicted it, and that person gets to enjoy his 15 minutes of fame. Usually, however, he wasn't right because of a superior ability to see the future, but rather because he tends to hold extreme positions. Or perhaps he's a dart thrower and this time the phenomenon went his way. Rarely, if ever, is that economist right twice in a row. So forecasts are unlikely to help us foresee the movements of the economic cycle. Nevertheless, we must be aware that it exists and repeats. The greatest mistakes with regard to the economic cycle result from a willingness to believe that it will not recur. But it always does. And those gullible enough to believe it won't tend to lose money. When we marketed our first distressed debt fund in 1988, most of the resistance came from people who said, maybe there won't be a recession, and thus nothing for you to buy. Of course, we were deep into a recession within two years, and our 1988-92 distressed debt funds found lots to buy and produced excellent returns. Eminent observers concluded again in the 1990s that the cycle had been eliminated and there would be no recession. In 1996, the Wall Street Journal wrote, From boardrooms to living rooms, and from government offices to trading floors, a new consensus is emerging. The big bad business cycle has been tamed. Top business leaders were quoted as saying, 
There is no natural law that says we have to have a recession, and I don't see what could happen to make a cyclical downturn. These quotes are reminiscent of, and look no less silly than, some of my favorites from 1928. There will be no interruption of our present prosperity, and I cannot help but raise a dissenting voice to the statements that prosperity in this country must necessarily diminish and recede in the future. Those quoted in 1996 might insist they weren't saying there would never be another recession, but rather that the tendency toward cyclical fluctuation had been dampened and there wouldn't be a recession soon. And they might say they were right in 1996 because there wasn't one until 2001. If managers had feared a recession in 1996, they might have pulled in their horns and missed some of the profits of the late 1990s. But they also might have avoided overexpanding and participating fully in the recession of 2001. The important thing is to recognize that cycles reverse and to allow for it. I described in my last memo, What Lies Ahead, the manner in which a recession continues until, at the margin, a few participants stop cutting back and decide instead to act in anticipation of better times. I believe this process, and the reverse process that eventually causes growth to stall out, will go on forever. No one knows when the turn will occur or how far the correcting leg will go, but the odds are against anyone who says the business cycle is dead. How can non-forecasters like Oaktree best cope with the ups and downs of the economic cycle? I think the answer lies in knowing where we are and leaning against the wind. For example, when the economy has fallen substantially, observers are depressed, capacity expansion has ceased, and there begin to be signs of recovery. We are willing to invest in companies in cyclical industries. When growth is strong, capacity is being brought on stream to keep up with soaring demand, and the market forgets these are cyclical companies whose peak earnings deserve trough valuations. We trim our holdings aggressively. We certainly might do so too early, but that beats the heck out of doing it too late. The Credit Cycle The longer I'm involved in investing, the more impressed I am by the power of the credit cycle. It takes only a small fluctuation in the economy to produce a large fluctuation in the availability of credit with great impact on asset prices and back on the economy itself. The process is simple. The economy moves into a period of prosperity. Providers of capital thrive, increasing their capital base. Because bad news is scarce, the risks entailed in lending and investing seem to have shrunk. Risk averseness disappears. Financial institutions move to expand their businesses, that is, to provide more capital. They compete for market share by lowering demanded returns. For example, cutting interest rates. Lowering credit standards, providing more capital for a given transaction, and easing covenants. At the extreme, providers of capital finance borrowers and projects that aren't worthy of being financed. As The Economist said earlier this year, the worst loans are made at the best of times. This leads to capital destruction, that is, to investment of capital in projects where the cost of capital exceeds the return on capital and eventually to cases where there is no return of capital. When this point is reached, the up-leg described above is reversed. Losses cause lenders to become discouraged and shy away. Risk-averseness rises, and along with it interest rates, credit restrictions, and covenant requirements. Less capital is made available, and at the trough of the cycle, only to the most qualified of borrowers. Companies become starved for capital. Borrowers are unable to roll over their debts, leading to defaults and bankruptcies. This process contributes to and reinforces the economic contraction. Of course, at the extreme, the process is ready to be reversed again. Because the competition to make loans or investments is low, high returns can be demanded along with high creditworthiness. Contrarians who commit capital at this point have a shot at high returns and those tempting potential returns begin to draw in capital. In this way, a recovery begins to be fueled. I stated earlier that cycles are self-correcting. The credit cycle corrects itself through the processes described above, and it represents one of the factors driving the fluctuations of the economic cycle. 
Prosperity brings expanded lending, which leads to unwise lending, which produces large losses, which makes lenders stop lending, which ends prosperity, and on and on. In Genius Isn't Enough, on the subject of long-term capital management, I wrote, Look around the next time there's a crisis. You'll probably find a lender. Over-permissive providers of capital frequently aid and abet financial bubbles. There have been numerous recent examples where loose credit contributed to booms that were followed by famous collapses. Real estate in 1989-92. Emerging markets in 1994-98. Long-term capital in 1998. The movie exhibition industry in 1999-2000. Venture capital funds and telecommunications companies in 2000-01. In each case, lenders and investors provided too much cheap money and the result was overexpansion and dramatic losses. In Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner was told, If you build it, they will come. In the financial world, if you offer cheap money, they will borrow, buy and build, often without discipline and with very negative consequences. The credit cycle contributed tremendously to the tech bubble. Money from venture capital funds cost far too many companies to be created, often with little in terms of business justification or profit prospects. Wild demand for IPOs caused their hot stocks to rise meteorically, enabling venture funds to report triple-digit returns and attract still more capital requiring speedy deployment. The generosity of the capital markets let companies sign on for huge capital projects that were only partially financed, secure in the knowledge that more financing would be available later at higher PEs and lower interest rates as the projects were further along. This ease caused far more capacity to be built than was needed, a lot of which is sitting idle. Much of the investment that went into it may never be recovered. Once again, easy money has led to capital destruction. In making investments, it has become my habit to worry less about the economic future, which I'm sure I can't know much about, than I do about the supply-demand picture relating to capital. Being positioned to make investments in an uncrowded arena conveys vast advantages. Participating in a field that everyone's throwing money at is a formula for disaster. We have lived through a long period in which cash acted like ballast, retarding your progress. Now, I think we're going into an environment where cash will be king. If you went to a leading venture capital fund in 1999 and said, I'd like to invest $10 million with you, they'd say, lots of people want to give us their cash. What else can you offer? Do you have contacts? Strategic insights? I think the answer today would be different. One of the critical elements in business or investment success is staying power. I often speak of the six-foot-tall man who drowned crossing the stream that was five feet deep on average. Companies have to be able to get through the tough times, and cash is one of the things that can make the difference. Thus, all of the investments we're making today assume we'll be going into the difficult part of the credit cycle, and we're looking for companies that will be able to stay the course. The Corporate Life Cycle as indicated earlier, business firms have to live through ups and downs. They're organic entities, and they have life cycles of their own. Most companies are born in an entrepreneurial mode, starting with dreams, limited capital, and the need to be frugal. Success comes to some. They enjoy profitability, growth, and expanded resources, but they also must cope with increasing bureaucracy and managerial challenges. The lucky few become world-class organizations, but eventually, most are confronted with challenges relating to hubris, extreme size, the difficulty of controlling far-flung operations, and perhaps ossification and an unwillingness to innovate and take risks. Some stagnate in maturity, and some fail under aging products or excessive debt loads and move into distress and bankruptcy. The reason I say failure carries within itself the seeds of success is that bankruptcy then permits some of them to shed debt and onerous contracts and emerge with a reborn emphasis on frugality and profitability, and the cycle resumes, as ever. The biggest mistakes I have witnessed in my investing career came when people ignored the limitations imposed by the corporate life cycle. In short, 
investors did assume trees could grow to the sky. In 1999, just as in 1969, investors accepted that ultra-high profit growth could go on forever. They also concluded that for the stocks of companies capable of such growth, no P.E. ratio was too high. People extrapolated earnings growth of 20% plus and paid P.E. ratios of 50 plus. Of course, when neither the growth nor the valuations turned out to be sustainable, losses of 90% plus became the rule. As always, the folly of projecting limitless growth became obvious in retrospect. The exigencies of the corporate life cycle usually render ultra-high growth rates unsustainable. Regardless of the improbability, however, investors indulge in the willing suspension of disbelief, which I always bring to the movies but check at the door when I come to work. They assume that successful companies will be able to attract enough talent, develop enough new products, access enough new markets, fend off competition while protecting high profit margins, and correctly make the strategic adaptations needed to keep growing. But it rarely works that way. In February, an article in Fortune magazine covering 1960-80, 1970-90, and 1980-99 showed that out of 150 candidates among large companies, only four or five in each period were able to grow earnings per share at 15% per year on average. Only one, Philip Morris, grew at that rate for all three periods. The key for Philip Morris wasn't a technological miracle or a fabulous new growth product, it was solid blocking and tackling in areas of stable consumer demand. So the latest wonder company, with a unique product, rarely possesses the secret of rapid growth forever. I think it's safer to expect a company's growth rate to regress toward the mean than it is to expect perpetual motion. Business Fads and Fancies We all laugh about hemlines, which fluctuate from year to year and add nothing to society but cost. The truth is, there's no place for them to go but up and down. And so they do. Likewise, there are business trends that have nowhere to go but back and forth. And so they do. Take corporate diversification, for example. As a new equity analyst in 1970, one of my first assignments was to study conglomerates, starting with Lytton, ITT, Whitaker, Teledyne, and City Investing. It was widely held that their diversification and synergies, along with the magic of acquisition, accounting, and high P.E. funny money, could produce rapid growth forever. They pursued large numbers of acquisitions, ITT made 52 one year, and were rewarded with very high P.E. ratios, which enabled them to prolong their growth for a while through further anti-dilutive acquisitions. It wasn't long, however, before their dependence on sky-high multiples was recognized and difficulties surfaced in connection with the management of their diverse organizations. Their managers switched to stressing the benefits of specialization as opposed to diversification, and the head of Whitaker wrote a paper extolling the virtues of a process he called distillation of the product centroid. Units began to be sold off and the companies deconglomerated. It's interesting to note that none of those five companies exists today. Diversification or specialization? Centralization or decentralization? Savings through just-in-time inventories or protection from stockpiles and redundancy? Tough, goal-oriented management or warm and fuzzy work environments? Leverage on the upside through maximum debt or the safety that comes from a large equity cushion? The pendulum in each of these continua can do nothing but swing back and forth. And so it does. The answer is that there is no perfect answer. Companies move toward one extreme as it becomes more popular. Then the drawbacks surface and they move back toward the other. There's no place else for companies to move with regard to each of these questions, and so they cycle from one extreme to the other. Likewise, there are cyclical fluctuations in how business phenomena are viewed. People move en masse toward one view, and when it turns out that no view can hold the answer, they move away from it. For example, in the 1990s, information technology was thought to hold the answer to increased corporate efficiency. A great deal of the decade's bull market was fed by gains in productivity, which contributed greatly to both earnings and the P.E. ratios investors applied to them. 
Technology-derived gains in productivity were embraced as having fundamentally altered the growth potential of companies and the economy. In testimony to the House of Representatives on February 23, 2000, Alan Greenspan said, There are few signs to date of slowing in the pace of innovation and the spread of our newer technologies that, as I have indicated in previous testimonies, have been at the root of our extraordinary productivity improvement. Indeed, some analysts conjecture that we still may be in the earlier stages of the rapid adoption of new technologies, and not yet in sight of the stage when this wave of innovation will crest. Well, I know what did crest within 30 days. The stock market. And on October 24, 2001, just 20 months later, a less expansive Mr. Greenspan was quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying, What the events of September 11th did was to introduce a whole new set of uncertainties which information technology is not going to improve our insight into. And so it is a reversal of some of the forces that engendered the productivity acceleration of the last five years. In other words, what had been thought to be a fundamental and durable change has proved to be one more development whose ability to wax and wane has to be acknowledged and watched. The gains from productivity are proving to be cyclical, and the cycle shorter than had been expected. The Market Cycle at the University of Chicago, I was taught that the value of an asset is the discounted present value of its future cash flows. If this is true, we should expect the prices of assets to change in line with changes in the outlook for their cash flows. But we know that asset prices often rise and fall without regard for cash flows, and certainly by amounts that are entirely disproportionate to the changes in cash flows. Finance professors would say that these fluctuations reflect changes in the discount rate being applied to the cash flows, or, in other words, changes in valuation parameters. Practitioners would agree that changes in P.E. ratios are responsible. And we all know that P.E. ratios fluctuate much more radically than do company fundamentals. The market has a mind of its own. And it is the changes in valuation parameters, caused primarily by changes in investor psychology, not changes in fundamentals that account for most short-term changes in security prices. This psychology, too, moves in a highly cyclical manner. For decades, literally, I've been lugging around what I thought was a particularly apt enumeration of the three stages of a bull market. The first, when a few forward-looking people begin to believe things will get better. The second, when most investors realize improvement is actually underway, and the third, when everyone concludes everything will get better forever. Why would anyone waste time trying for a better description? This one says it all. Stocks are cheapest when everything looks grim. The depressing outlook keeps them there, and only a few astute and daring bargain hunters are willing to take new positions. Maybe their buying attracts some attention, or maybe the outlook turns a little less depressing. But for one reason or another, the market starts moving up. After a while, the outlook seems a little less poor. People begin to appreciate that improvement is taking place, and it requires less imagination to be a buyer. Of course, with the economy and market off the critical list, they pay prices that are more reflective of stocks' fair values. And eventually, giddiness sets in. Cheered by the improvement in economic and corporate results, people become willing to extrapolate it. The masses become excited and envious about the profits made by investors who were early and they want in. And they ignore the cyclical nature of things and conclude that the gains will go on forever. That's why I love the old adage, what the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does in the end. Most importantly, in the late stages of the great bull markets, people become willing to pay prices for stocks that assume the good times will go on ad infinitum but they cannot. When the tech bubble was roaring ahead in late 1999, no one could think of any development that might be capable of bringing it to an end. Technology was certain to revolutionize everyday life, creating a new investment paradigm. Revenue growth, or at least the growth in eyeballs, was strong. Capital was freely available, enabling expansion to continue and new innovative companies to be formed. Cash flows into mutual funds and 401ks guaranteed steady demand for the stocks. 
Each time another tech stock was added to an index, a whole new group of forced buyers was created among index funds and the active managers benchmarked against that index. No portfolio manager could take the risk of underowning these stocks. They had to buy them, regardless of price. Eureka! There was no way they could stop going up. The perpetual motion machine had been built. But somehow, the stocks did stop going up. And then they started going down. I don't think anyone can say just what it was that caused the tech bubble to burst. Certainly, I can't think of any one thing, even in hindsight, which is usually 2020. Maybe the groundwork was laid for declines when it was shown merely that the rise could slow. Maybe a few smart people, to paraphrase the third of the three stages, concluded that everything wouldn't get better forever. The best explanation probably is that the prices just collapsed under their own weight. Anyway, the market proved, once again, that it can't move in one direction forever. It has to be appreciated in cyclical terms, with increases followed by decreases, and in fact with increases causing decreases. In April 1991, in just my second general memo to clients, I described the market as follows. The mood swings of the securities markets resemble the movement of a pendulum, although the midpoint of its arc best describes the position of a pendulum on average. It actually spends very little of its time there. Instead, it is almost always swinging toward or away from the extremes of its arc. But whenever the pendulum is near either extreme, it is inevitable that it will move back toward the midpoint sooner or later. In fact, it is the movement toward an extreme itself that supplies the energy for the swing back. Investment markets make the same pendulum-like swing between euphoria and depression, between celebrating positive developments and obsessing over negatives, and thus between overpriced and underpriced. The swing of the pendulum, the oscillation of the cycle, either way is fine. Just don't tell me it'll be a straight line. In 1999, the Wall Street Journal ran a number of op-ed pieces by James Glassman and Kevin Hassett, trumpeting the theory behind the book, Dow 36,000. I couldn't think of anything that made less sense. By last month, it seemed the journal's story had changed. With economic conditions turning downward so quickly, pushed along by the events of September 11th, a lot of business books have been rendered irrelevant, even silly. Anyone remember Dow 36,000? How quickly views change, and how quickly the logical-sounding rationale for lofty or depressed prices is shown in retrospect to have been silly. The risks entailed in ignoring the inherently cyclical nature of things are manifold, and the various cycles interact, often in ways that surprise the optimists. On October 26th, the beautifully written, but inaptly titled, Grant's Interest Rate Observer described the situation at a fallen telecommunications giant as follows. In the new economy, the front office seemed persuaded there would be no recession, let alone a global recession, and no bear market, especially one concentrated in technology. There would be no pause in the growth of the demand for broadband, no collapse in the price of broadband access, and no credit contraction. What we are looking at is compressed cash flow at the trough in a cyclical business so new that its proponents have yet to discover that it is, in fact, cyclical. This example represents a four-bagger. It seems the company's management ignored the cyclicality of 1. the economy, 2. the stock market, 3. the availability of credit, and 4. the demand and price for its product. As in this case, the failure to prepare for cycles usually leads to what later are perceived as obvious, easily avoided mistakes. Cycles and how to live with them. No one knew when the tech bubble would burst, and no one knew what the extent of the correction could be or how long it would last. But it wasn't impossible to get a sense that the market was euphoric and investors were behaving in an unquestioning, giddy manner. That was all it would have taken to avoid a great deal of the carnage. Having said that, I want to point out emphatically that many of those who complained about the excessive market valuations, including me, started to do so years too soon. And for a long time, 
another of my old standards was proved true. Being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. Some of the cautious investors ran out of staying power, losing their jobs or their clients because of having missed the gains. Some capitulated and, having missed the gains, jumped in just in time to participate in the losses. So I'm not trying to give the impression that coping with cycles is easy, but I do think it's a necessary effort. We may never know where we're going or when the tide will turn, but we had better have a good idea where we are. November 20, 2001 Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Legal information and disclosures. This memorandum expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated, and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is the potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This memorandum is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This memorandum, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation.